Today we're going to be talking about growing the church. Growing the church. We're going to begin this lesson by turning to Genesis chapter number 12. Genesis chapter number 12 as we look at growing the church. I will encourage you to join with me as we read the first four verses from Genesis 12. Genesis 12 may be among the most important verses in the Bible. Let's read them. And you may wonder, why would we be reading from the life of Abraham when we're going to talk about growing the church? What's the connection? Well, there is a vital connection, as we shall see, moving along. So let's read together. Now the Lord Jehovah had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now those are very powerful words from the Bible. And they have a lot to do with everything regarding the church. Let us pray. God, our Father, as we open up this lesson today, we humbly acknowledge how deficient we are in understanding all that we need to know. And Father in heaven, we humbly acknowledge that we feel helpless before the ocean of truth locked within the pages of the Bible and the urgency of unlocking all the truths that our generation needs. God, our Father, we pray Thee especially now for the covenant family that are living across America and all throughout the Western world who are now surrounded, Father in heaven, by enemies on every side. And I pray for our people, the elect children of God, the covenant people, assigned as heirs by election, heirs of the covenants made, the covenant made with Abraham. And Lord God, as you look upon our pitiful state today, and we are in a pitiful state, we are in a state of near helplessness as we watch the enemy grow stronger every day and your children so confused, disillusioned, disheartened, and really powerless to know what to do. 
So we pray today, Father, that in a day when the wicked become more wicked, when the evil becomes more evil, when the vile only find a way to become more vile, that you will rise up for in behalf of a remnant who love you and serve you with all that they know how to serve you. And I pray today, Father, that you will be the great arbitrator, that you will be the great mediator, the great intervener for the elect of your children who are now in a very desperate way in so many different countries of the West, including our own beloved America. So I pray today, Father, that the days of the enemy be few, that another may take their office. Let their children become the fatherless. Let their wives become the widows. Let their children be the vagabonds and beg. Let thy bread, Father, find a way to escape from them. Cast them out into desolate places. Let the extortioner catch all that they have. And may the strangers spoil their labor before they can steal any more. Let there be none to extend mercy unto them. Neither let there be any to favor their fatherless children. Let their posterity be cut off. And in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Father, rise up and save your people, not because they deserve it, not because, Heavenly Father, they are in a position to receive blessings, but simply because they are the children of Abraham. And because you entered into a covenant with Abraham that is insoluble, undissolvable, that no power on earth can break, a covenant that's ironclad because you are the party of the first part. You are the one that swore by your very name that you would never cease to be a, a father and a covenant overseer of the people you chose in election before the foundation of the world. So guide us today, Jehovah the Almighty, by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen your people, gird up their loins, and make them strong, and make them capable and able. Give them, Father in heaven, all the armor of the gospel, that they may stand as fearless soldiers, not being afraid, not being cowardly in this time and history, but being resolute, courageous and bold, seeking to execute your commandments as we would under any other circumstance, living out our lives in humility and meekness, but working and doing all the things you told us to do before you ever allowed Adam and Eve to leave the garden. Help us to be fruitful and multiply. Help us to exercise dominion. Help us, Lord God, to build roots, to raise up homes. And Father in heaven, let us do the work you've called us to do in the middle of chaos 
And all of this we plead and pray for, and especially, Lord God, help us to grow a church in the middle of such un ungodly times. And for this we pray in the blessed name of the only one that can deliver us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Help us, O living God, we pray. Amen. Now, I know that the verses that we've read from the book of Genesis may seem a little bit foreign to the idea of growing a church. But there's more encapsulated into Genesis chapter 1 through 4 than we might think. Abraham and Sarah are the model couple for a family. They are the model couple for building a family. If you want to build a good family, look to Abraham and Sarah. If you want to build a church, they have the perfect model, all the character for doing that. Abraham and Sarah together blazed a trail through a fallen world as our covenant forebears to leave for us a legacy of how to. How to build a family. How to raise up a church. How to exercise dominion of the earth in the middle of a wicked world. Remember, Abraham and Sarah navigated their lives through a Canaanite world. All the nations of Canaan surrounded them in their sojourn <clears throat> through this world. I'd like to remind the congregation that there may be a very succinct reason why the prophet Isaiah reminds us in chapter 51. It's almost like he's saying, listen, listen, you Israelites, hearken to me. Ye that follow after righteousness, you that are seeking the Lord your God, look, hearken, look into the rock from whence ye are hewn. Go to the ancestral beginning and look at the beginning and the origins of who you are. Go to the rock when she are hewn, and to the hole of the pit from which you were digged. For the Lord God, correction, look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. So the prophet Isaiah is commanding us to look closely at Abraham and Sarah, and I'd, I'd like to try and do this today. I want to I talk about growing a church, but I want to build it around the idea, and in this lesson and maybe one to follow, of how Abraham and Sarah left us with the model, a model that allows us to know how to build a family amid a, a very in a turbulent world, how to be persevering, and they did it because 
They had what we will call the qualities that require the growing of a church or the building of a family. It wouldn't make a lot of difference. They both require certain basic qualities. Abraham and Sarah are the faithful model for all generations. Praise the name of God who blessed us with the call to Abraham from Ur the Chaldees and his wife Sarah. They possessed what might be called commitment with sacrifice. Without sacrifice, commitment is not real. They are one and the same. You will not be committed unless you are willing to make the sacrifices to make the commitment real. You have to be willing to sacrifice. What you must give up, and it may be something very dear to you. Was not Abraham called to leave his kindred? Help me now. Was he not called to leave his family? All of his extended family he left in Ur the Chaldees. Probably knew he would never ever see them again. He left his native land behind. Abraham did not leave his idols because I have discovered, at least based on a lot of extra biblical literature, including a variety of sources, that Abraham had been a special child from his birth. When he was born, he was an unusual child. So he disdained his father's idols. All the while he's growing up as a child, he abhorred the idols that were being worshipped. And I don't believe that it was due to anything that Abraham had of his own person. It was because... The call of God was upon Abraham from his child. He may have not recognized it, and his father Terah and his mother may have not known it. But God did know that, and he knew the same for Sarah. Now they came out of the same seedbed, and their relationship is quite close, but not so close in that generation, that their DNA did not produce 100% pedigreed stock. Abraham was 100% certified pedigreed seed going back to Adam. And so was Sarah, his wife. Together they possessed the genes that were the best that God could plant within their bodies, minds and souls. What does it mean when, a when God told Abraham 
I want you to go into a land. A land you've never been before. Now many of us today think of of the idea that the frontier has ended because where else do you carve out a homestead in a wilderness area in America today? But you know, there are other frontiers beyond geography. One of the best frontiers that you can enter into for exploration is building a family. That's that's an adventure. That, that's going into a strange land. That's taking two identities that have grown up in separate families, doing their own little family way of doing everything, and we're going to join those two. We're going to join those two people together. You mean we're going to melt two individual identities into one. And that's what a family is. It's a mystery. But you know, everything about God is a mystery. Everything God does is a mystery. Everything about the church is a mystery. It's a mystery in terms of the composition of this body gathered here today. Now, most all of the older people are transplanted from some other place. I am a transplant, so that might make me an outsider, if there is such. Some people think there is. What is the mystery that gathers a body of such diverse people as we are together. What is that force? Well, we could, we could say it is random chance. To that you would probably say, not on your life. Not, not random chance to gather this diverse body together from how many states within the United States, from foreign countries. How does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen unless there is a divine hand guiding it all. Now, people of the world, they don't know how to solve mysteries because if they can't understand it and, and, and measure it and and run it through the scientific method, it, it's not believable to them. But a, a believer in, in God Almighty knows that everything about life is a mystery. How about the creation of the world? How about the fact that you can look through a telescope and you can only see a little miniature part of the bigness and vastness of the universe? Or you can look through a microscope and only see the, the tiny outer circumference of the little world that God has created. A little insect that you can barely see with your eyes and you yet you see it moving. Has all the functionality that, that lets it move. 
We serve a glorious God. He's omnipotent, all-knowing, correction, all-powerful. He's omniscient, all-knowing. He's omnipresent everywhere at all times. So Abraham and Sarah reflect commitment amid lots and lots of sacrifice. Every step was one of blessing and sacrifice. If we are unwilling to sacrifice, we cannot grow the church. Growing a church is learning how to be sacrificial giver. You have to be willing to sacrifice. To give up certain things, to gain better things. To give up a human vision, to find a godly vision. Abraham and Sarah possessed something else. They possessed, to the glory of God, they possessed a marvelous and a wonderful visionary outlook on life. They had vision with zeal. Ask yourself a question. What compelled Abraham to believe God? To pick up, pack up, and leave his country. His father, Terah, is with him. His nephew, Lot, is traveling with him and Sarah. They have no children. We do not know how long they have been married. We're not sure just exactly how old Abraham and Sarah were when they left Ur of the Chaldees, but they all picked up, packed up, and by whatever means they traveled, they may have rode camels, they may have walked, but they walked several hundred miles to a city called Haran. They were in possession of a vision. Now you cannot grow and build a church without a vision. You have to have something that compels you and drives you. What, what enables you to build a family? What gives you the inner drive to sacrifice a life of singleness, of living your life self-absorbed, living the life of a party boy, and waking up and doing whatever your heart pleases on a weekend, versus finding a woman and building a family. And then the party's over. And the real struggle of life begins. But it brings meaning and purpose into your life, which will not be found in singleness for a young man forever. There comes a time when he must have the call to move on in life. A life of purpose and meaning and find a wife and build a family. And once they get the family put together, 
and they have welded themselves into this covenant, indissoluble covenant, then they need children because that's what a family is. That's why marriage, the ultimate end of marriage, is to be a, an environmental condition and structure for children. That's what God intended. Now the world says, oh, nonsense. And you know the world can come up with 150 reasons why you don't need children. I have a lovely, there's a lovely couple, many of you know this couple, they were here at Passover. They had been married for about a year and a half. They had a little daughter. She came into the world and it was a difficult birth and they struggled and the child barely lived, but she did live and turned out to be a very beautiful little girl. The girl's parents, in the presence of her husband, told him one day, he said, you know, um, you have a beautiful daughter, and we're, we certainly love that daughter, but we would like to suggest that, you know, that you got a daughter, and that ought to be fine. Let's not worry about any more children. Now, this is the girl's father. Now, the young man was taken aback because he, he's a young man, and he... He wants to make peace with her parents and they seem to like him and he likes them. But now he's faced with a dilemma he never encountered. We don't think you ought to have any more children. And he's, so he was, at first he was stunned. He didn't know how to answer. But then he, I guess, had his own mind made up. And I'm not sure how he answered, but... It wasn't too long before they had another child. Which was a marvelous testimony of his resolute desire to be a father again. So families, they have to have commitment, which is sacrifice. They have to have vision, which is being a zealot. I, I'm, I'm not sure anybody wants to be called a zealot. A, a zealot might be termed as a person with a lot of zeal. You are, you are pursuing a vision that you will not turn loose of. That's what we ought to have in a marriage. When we join two lives together and we join them into a covenant... We seal the covenant in blood and we have put that covenant together. We ought to purpose that that covenant will not, cannot, shall not be broken. No matter what. We'll call it an, the unbreakable, the correction, the unbreakable, the unbreakable covenant of a marriage. So when we grow a church, we have to have commitment, we have to be willing to sacrifice, we have to have a vision. There has to be a compelling vision that generates the continual faith 
to keep that vision alive and well. Commitment and sacrifice. Visionary, a visionary man and a visionary woman. A lot of them together build a church. And then we also have to have beyond commitment and sacrifice, vision and zeal. We have to have enduring faith and perseverance. Enduring faith. The Bible does not tell us to look at Abraham, your father, and Sarah that bury you without good reason. The faith of Abraham. God tested him at every step of the way. Everything God promised Abraham is resting upon a child of promise that will come. Everything is vested in that child of promise. They waited not a little while, but a long number of years, and no child came. So what, what generated the faith? What kept them going? Now we know they had a lapse of faith. And God knows that his people will struggle. God knows that we are fallen. And that we will stub our toe occasionally. So Abraham and Sarah grew weary, impatient. And they, felt, they just felt that maybe, maybe whatever reason God may have had, maybe he didn't feel they were faithful enough. Maybe that, that holy God decided that, that maybe he had just made a wrong choice in choosing Abraham and Sarah to be his covenant model for all of time. They didn't, I, the Bible doesn't tell us why, but we know that Sarah woke up one day and said, Hey, sweetie, I've decided how we can get a child. Now, the unfortunate thing, church, is that the lady that became the surrogate mother did not come into that family by accident. She was the consequence of another bad choice that was made by Abraham. Now, I find, I don't find criticism in Abraham. What I do discover in reading this story of Abraham and people, that's, that's what God has given us in the Bible. Life is built around stories that are timeless. The story of creation is a timeless story. The story of the, of the Garden of Eden, of the fall, those are timeless. They live, they have a a life of their own, and they live in every generation because they're loaded with meaning. And that's why we're, one of the reasons we're here today is we need to have a meaning. I'm going to call it a justification for existence. 
Why did God create us? Why did He give us life? Why did He put us on this terra firma called earth? He had a reason. So when Abraham and Sarah grew very impatient, and their faith waned, and finally lapsed, when they had gone down into Egypt during the famine, remember, when they were in Egypt during the famine, there's no record in the Bible that they left with a beautiful Egyptian servant. But when they came back, they had an Egyptian servant that apparently was new to the family that came back. And uh, Sarah might have thought, well, if I can't have children, maybe I can have a, a maid or a housekeeper to help me, keep me company. For whatever reason, here is Hagar in that household. And Sarah sees this young, pristine girl and has the idea that she could be a surrogate, surrogate mother. You know the rest of that story. We're still living with the consequences of the offspring of that union that God didn't authorize. When Ishmael was born, the Arab world began. And they're still around today. And plenty of them are one of the most populous people on the planet today. They're, they're now becoming the new occupiers of Europe, which is the cradle of our, of our very people, Europe. So they had a lapse of that faith, but their faith was enduring because they made a correction. They didn't escape the consequences the lesson here is that we're all free to make our choices. Young people, free to make your choices, but not free to escape the consequences. The consequences will always follow you. So make sure your choice is a good one. Oh, how good your choice must be. Now, as you move through the life of Sarah and Abraham, they set that perfect example, not in a flawless lifestyle, not because they didn't have lapses of their faith, but because they did not lose their tenacity. They did not give up. They did not surrender. They held their ground. And then the word perseverance, faithfulness with perseverance. You know, perseverance is a long word. When you learn how to spell it, if you're a child, you think, wow, that, that word lasts all the way across the page. Perseverance. But it's a good word. Because that's what you have to have in a marriage, is perseverance. You have to persevere in the good times, the bad times, 
And all the times in between good and bad, sometimes they can get ugly. But you have to persevere. Persevere. And then we know that that, that ability to, to persevere in Abraham and Sarah, to persevere with the vision, and I will show thee a land, and I will make your name great. Now think about this, that Abraham in his lifetime didn't live to see the reality of most of that. About 95% of all the blessing that finally came to the family of Abraham was after his death. But this one man and this one woman became the model family for the first family under covenant, under the covenant of redemption. And they became the first founders of the church of the Old Testament. Where two or three are gathered together, the Bible says in Matthew 18, 20, there am I in your midst. So Abraham and Sarah were a family, they were a church. Adam and Eve were a family, but they were also a church. But then the flood came. Not a little tiny flood, but a giant flood. And the recreation of the world during that flood is a different world, and Abraham and Sarah then are the beginning of that world and the first genuine family and the first church of real substance. So in the life of Abraham and Sarah, and we'll look at this more intently, and I'm, uh, I'm, the next time I give a lesson, I'm going to come back and show how sacrifice really works. Now I'm just learning how this how this word sacrifice, what it really entails. And I'll um, come back to this. We'll circle back on this later. I don't like to circle back because that's what our press secretary does all the time. But I'll circle back on that one. Now I'm going to have the congregation turn in your Bible to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Because... The, the basic emphasis that we're striving for here is the, the growing of a church. We're, we're all highly vested today. We're invested with trying to build a family. We're, we're all, everyone that I know that has, that's in the state of marriage is very vested in trying to raise up an enduring, faithful, God-blessed family. And you, you know that's becoming very rare in our generation. A biblical family, the world calls it a nuclear family, is a, is, is a very, very rare commodity in 21st century America. If we said, by definition, an intact marriage, a marriage that has survived 
has survived the scars of this very fallen world. What, a, what an amazing thing. Now, when, when you talk about a church, folks, the very principles that are involved in building a family, building the life, following the trick of Abraham and Sarah are very much involved in growing a church. They are really inseparable. So let's look. Let's go to the text, Matthew 16, 13. <clears throat> About 2,000 years ago almost, Jesus asked his disciples one day, a simple question. Very simple question, but it's very profound. He just simply said, Who do men say that I am? Who am I? Well, that, that seems like an easy question. But most of the people living at that point in time in the land of Judea didn't have a good answer for that question. Because... Opinions were very divided as to who Jesus was. Now that's not unusual because we live in a world that's very undecided about Jesus today. You have all kinds of people who believe that he was not really God. I hope no one has ever touched base with that rather large organization. It's, they call themselves a church. And they don't believe that Jesus is God at all. They believe he's the firstborn of every creature. He's created. So not everybody in, in the church world is, is on the same page about who Jesus was, is. And the world doesn't even pay any attention to who Jesus was. In fact, the most Singular most coveted name used to express blasphemous language is the name of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate expression of a burned out conscience. To curse somebody, to curse and use the name Jesus Christ as a curse word. But it happens all the time in America today. To the shame of this generation. So in answer to the question, they said, I'm in Matthew 16 now, reading on from verse 13. Some say that thou art John the Baptist. Now these are the believing people that are following Jesus. Well, some say you're Elias or Elijah, and others believe you're Jeremiah, or that is the prophet Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, and maybe you've come back to life again. Maybe you've been mysteriously resurrected. We don't know. Are you one of the prophets? Are you John the Baptist? He saith unto them, But whom do you say that I am? Jesus knew all these other answers, but he wanted to know what they thought. They are following Jesus. 
They are the first generation of the building blocks of the foundation that's being built in the land of Judea into the church. And Simon Peter answered. Now, you know, Simon Peter didn't wait for everybody else to answer. He quickly responded and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, what did that mean when he said, You are Christ, the Son of the living God? He, he opened up the idea that Jesus who was standing in front of them, was the reality, the flesh and blood reality of the promised Messiah that had been promised to Israel for hundreds of years by the prophets and the sages. And there he stood, the Messiah of Israel. Now, for a first century Judea, nothing could be more startling than to think that at last the messianic hope of all history to that point in time was fulfilled right in front of their eyes. Here stood, in the words of the Apostle Peter, Christ, meaning the Anointed One, the Messiah that was to come. And so Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So Jesus said, Peter, don't think you came up with that idea. You didn't think about it. You didn't think it up. That came from heaven. And, but I, and I say also unto thee, now, now, verse 18, look at verse 18, church, because this is one of the primary verses in the church world that is seized upon to establish the Roman papacy. It's absolutely wrong in the manner in which they interpret it, but it says... Jesus said, I say also unto thee, speaking to Peter, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, Peter's not the rock, folks. It won't be many days till Peter will deny Jesus. He's anything but the rock. He says, I will build my church on this rock. Now, now hold on to this promise, church. And think them out. No, I'd rather you didn't think about some of the wicked, the wickedness we have in the world today. The people that vehemently hate pro-Christian, pro-biblical, Second Amendment, God-fearing. Patriotic Americans. They are becoming the most hated people on the world in the world. We used to be called deplorables. That was mild 
to the words domestic terrorist. White supremacist terrorist is what you are if you live in the Midwest and believe in the Second Amendment. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now the it is circling back to what? My church. Upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the, the way I look at this church, I feel compelled to tell, to tell this congregation that your investment in a church in our, in our time of history, right here today, when I say investment, I'm talking about your love, your devotion to what the ideals of this church represent that we believe in racial separatism. We have not said we hate anybody. I've never said I hated anybody. I hate what God hates, and I love what God loves. So if, if there's someone that God hates, and I'm, I guess I can hate him too. He hated Esau. He said, I love Jacob, but I hate Esau. I think there are some people today that God would never love. Just by virtue of who they are. There was more than one reason why Jesus said, Give not that which is holy to the dogs. Give not that which is holy to the swine. Not talking about literal dogs and literal swine. They're two-legged dogs and two-legged swine. And we, we have a growing number of those in America today. I will build my church upon the rock of the divinity of Christ. Now the singular most important belief that this church holds today is who we believe Jesus Christ is. That's the cardinal belief that you must have. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. I just feel that you are not a Christian. Now he said to Peter, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now the Roman Catholic Church loves that verse because they believe the first member, the first pope, in the Roman church was Peter. History has quite another story on that. The apostle Peter was 
by office he was an elder. And by office he was an apostle. Correction. By office he was an elder. By calling he was an apostle. He was not the first pope of the Roman Catholic Church. Never was. Absolutely, it's irrefutable, a historical fact that Peter was never the founder of what is now called the Roman Catholic Church. It's one of those lies that has been perpetrated throughout history. Nonetheless, God did tell Peter, look, I'm going to give you the keys. I'm going to give you the keys, Peter. Now, he doesn't tell him what he's going to unlock. Because keys are a badge of authority. You use a key to unlock something. So God gave Peter the keys to open two doors that were vital to the future building of the church. The new apostolic church that is being built right here in the New Testament book of Matthew. In the words of Jesus, upon this rock I will build my church. Peter was given the keys that opened the door to the identification to the whole Judean world that Jesus was indeed the Messiah at the day of Pentecost. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, delivered the, one of what is called now the single greatest sermon ever preached in the history of apostolic Christianity. It's found in Acts chapter 2. And Peter surveyed the entire panorama of history to prove that the Savior that they had crucified in that generation, the one that they had humiliated and shamefully nailed to a cross, was the very Messiah that they were looking for. And they were so convicted on the day of Pentecost with that sermon that when Peter ended the sermon, the a Pentecost crowd that had gathered there for that celebration, they rose up and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Because they were under conviction of having helped nail Jesus to the cross. Some of them were in the crowd that said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And now they were saying, men and brethren, what shall we do? We're guilty. We're guilty of crucifying the very one that came to save us. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises to you and to your children, to you and to your children. Hello, to you and to your children. That's the Abrahamic promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off, all the Israelites that had been carried into captivity, into exile, to you and to your children. And the Holy Ghost is going to come upon you. And you will become 
that, that glorious body that will form the first building blocks of the church. And on that day, check it out, Acts 2, 3,000 souls were baptized at the end of that sermon. And the, the New Testament church was born, was born because Peter unlocked that door. Now, this is the apostle that had just denied Jesus. But remember, Jesus had told Peter, Peter, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you that your faith doesn't fail you. Because I know what's ahead of you, Peter. You're going, to, you're going to circle back. You're going to come back. And you're going to be a powerhouse. Because church, when you've been cut down, as low as Peter was, there's only one, one way to go. And that's back up. A good man falls seven times and gets up again. One of the great verses in the book of Proverbs. A good man can be cut down seven times, but he, he's, going to get, he's going to get up again. I think you know somebody in our, in our generation that's, that's been on the national scene that's had his legs cut out from underneath him time and time and time again. For seven years, they've cut this man down. And he's like someone who has been knocked out at the ring, but before the count of ten, he's back on his feet again. I don't know if he'll come back on his feet again this time, because they have really delivered him a solar plexus blow. But it all started in 2015 and now it's 2022 and that's seven years of brutal persecution. So the first door Peter unlocked was at Pentecost. And the last one that he unlocked and thereafter he lost the key. God never let him unlock another door. He unlocked the door to Cornelius, the first converted non-Judean in the history of the world, the first Israelite of the dispersion exile, Greek-speaking, became a Christian. His name was Cornelius. He was a centurion. He was a military man under, with, he was over 100 men under him. And that was... That was in Acts chapter number 10. And that's, that is a pivotal chapter in the Bible. And that was the last door Peter opened. But it was a powerful door. It changed radically. It was a turning point in the history of the church. The second key and the first key. Now, this lesson will resume again. And that will be the end of this lesson for today. Thank you.